the Jive Aces first podcast. We have called it the Jivecast because it's a cunning abbreviation, amalgamation of the words Jive Aces and podcast. Yes. Genius. Absolute genius. We're currently on a ferry on the way back from, where are we on the way back from, Ian? Well, a whirlwind tour, another whirlwind tour of Europe. And we literally have just driven from Budapest over the past two days or day and a half. We're now on a ferry from Calais, heading towards the White Cliffs of Dover. We're going to try and do quite a few of these different subjects about the band. We'll, we can ask people what they want to know about, what subjects. If anything. But if anything at all, uh, if, it's, if we think it's going to be interesting. But um, for this first one, I thought we'd just kick off with uh, the story of how the band got together, because a lot of people do like to hear that. We've talked about it on the radio. They don't give you very long. And this is like our radio, isn't it, Alex? Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. So um, I'm going to be like the interviewer as if I don't know the story. I wasn't actually there. I joined the band a bit later on. Are you trying to say uh, you're younger? (laughs) Not trying. Um, So for the benefit of you, the listener, I will act completely ignorant (laughs) and uh, and ask you questions that I know the answer to. in order to get out of you the information that we want? Uh, answer questions. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, Ian. <laughs> yes, Alex. I said in my best wicker-type manner. <laughs> Hello, good, good evening, evening and welcome. welcome. That is so, the other one, anyway. <laughs> so, uh, it is well stated that the band formed in 1989. It is probably 1989. Probably okay, so... Uh, mine's get a bit fuzzy when we look back at that time, that era. Well, no, because actually, the that goes all wobbly now, like back in time. Because basically, let's let's move, let's go further back in. Well, time. that's what I was going to ask. Let's go I further was, back in time. I was yes. going to say, leading up to the actual formation of the Jive, obviously the Jive didn't spring whole cloth out of thin air, snap of the fingers. Exactly. What, what were the events, or what were the groups, or what were you doing around that time um, that led up to the formation? So, give us through, bring us through that period well, of your going history. back as early as I care. Uh, Me and Peter, the drummer, to those of you who know him as the drummer, uh, were at school together when we went to school. Where was that? That was in Billericay in Essex. And it was called Mayflower School. And it was one of the first, quote-unquote, comprehensive schools, which basically uh, where there apparently was some education going on. And... Allegedly. (laughs) When the Langdon Skins came over to fight our school, the... Metalwork room was empty. Of, was that t- of tools. Of, of tools, <laughs> yeah. And bits of metal, I guess, as well. Um, I never got involved in that. So you learned how to fight. That was the stuff. Yeah. Or run away. Yeah. Uh, but basically, we were going to the school, and he was at the same school. We were into similar music. We sort of both met based on the fact that I liked Elvis Presley, not Costello. And he had Elvis badges all over his back. So somehow we got talking. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. Um, We started going to rock and roll and jive clubs, even before probably we were meant to. And when we were about 15, coming up 15, 16, just before we left school, we met Ken, who is obviously the bass player. And shortly after that, met John, Big John who is the uh, saxophone player. Actually, just as another little piece of info, wasn't Ian Drury of Glockheads? He was. At your school Ian well? Drury was, but he was obviously older than obviously, us. Obviously older. Obviously older than us. 
but he did go to Mayflower School. So uh, we went to school, actually spent a lot of the time um, colloquially bunking off school and going around another guy who played saxophone's house called Neil Thomas, who had a, an amazing invention at the time, which was a video player. Wow. And he had all the rock and roll films like Rock Around the Clock with Bill Haley, Girl Can't Help It, Rock, 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 and all sorts of 1950s movies. So we actually used to, when we were bored, go around to his house and watch rock and roll movies, which probably did more for my current career, current <laughs> career than, than um, my sociology lessons as much that, as I did enjoy them. Little did you know that was your education, practical education. Exactly. Uh, so we met Ken and John um, shortly before leaving school. Um, I was, around that time, I was started going to uh, the rock and roll club in um, a place called Newburgh Park, Ilford, Essex, East London, like, um, called Oscars, which was at the Green Gate. I'm putting all the details in it so that, so that anyone who really cares, of which maybe we have one stalker who actually cares, oh, please will actually make a note please of Please some more stalkers. Yeah, actually will make all known and go, ooh. So you know, there should be a plaque at the Green Gate. We'll have a word with, a word with Mike Reed, our friend That's Mike Reed, point. and he can sort out the blue Well, it wasn't a first gig. It was just where we all met, sort of, and hung out. It was a rock and roll club on a Wednesday night, and we were into the music. We used to jive and swing dance with our girlfriends, and we started getting going backwards, as it were, into not just rock and roll, but rhythm and blues, hillbilly, swing, jazz, Cab Calloway, Louis Jordan, the roots, and the, the roots, roots, of, rock the and roots of rock and roll, yeah. Roots music, as they call it now. And so we started dancing to that. And we used to, we used to have a little dance troupe, as it were, of jitterbug dancers. Now you'd call them Lindy Hop or swing dancers. And there was about six of us, I think. And we used to go and dance to different bands, including John Petter's swing band, who still plays a mean set of drums. But at that time, also, there wasn't such a... The dance scene and the, the mu people who no. like the music were more of an amalgamated thing. It wasn't a Lindy Hop scene on its own. Yeah, there was no Lindy Hop scene as such. There was no swing dancing being taught. The nearest thing was, um, I remember seeing a show about Whitey's Lindy Hoppers and Mamalu Parks on TV. And the jiving Lindy Hoppers, uh, Warren and those guys who were involved in that. Ryan was around at the time. That's uh, Ryan. Ryan Francois. All these guys, and so we used to go to the same place as them, and we used to dance. And then, oddly enough, we sort of just, I always wanted to, I played a bit of guitar, blues I mainly played. I was more in a John Lee Hooker and playing like all this blues stuff. And, it's um, three, three chords, isn't it, basically? Actually, John Lee Hooker sometimes one. One chord, yeah, one and a half. One with a foot beating. <laughs> and um, so he's used to do all that sort of thing. And I wanted to, and I did a bit of Elvis, did a bit of rock and roll, did a bit of busking at one point. Me and Peter went to a Elvis holiday in Hemsby and didn't have enough money for the bus home and we were about 15 at the time and we met up with some Welsh rockabillies in a band and um, who had guitars and we basically did some busking. Um, I think it was about the time of the Stray Cats were suddenly famous so I did some Elvis and then did Stray Cat Strut and uh, got our money home. First, Yeah, it was first sort of... Uh, I think that was my first sort of knowledge of... Well, realising that I could sing and play the guitar and people would actually listen and think you could do it. <laughs> was that, do you think that, that moment or around that time was the 
seed that was planted for actually wanting to do it as a career or was it not so defined did that just come about more gradually yeah no I think it did it definitely I don't know about I never really thought of career I guess as much as not really wanting a career anyway um being lazy and wanting to play music so I wanted to dance or play music and I think that did sort of cement the fact that I got that okay you could actually could actually do it people would actually listen to you you know I, I was I, I never really thought oh I could sing I just loved the music wanted to play the rhythm guitar and um, people liked it so I guess that did really sort of cement that bring that into my mind and from then on I did that, that as a, a sort of a goal yeah and um, then we sort of started messing about I would play the guitar I'd get I built Peter a drum kit out of um, my uh, mum's washing up the up bowl and uh, a Duckham's oil can and an and a old kitchen chair. We have the picture of that. Which we have a picture to prove it. We'll, we'll try and link that in the, uh, in the description somehow. Yeah, somehow. When we work out how to post this podcast. Yeah, because yeah, we can't really edit it, stick it up here because it's not, yeah. a, not a video. And um, so, yeah, no, it was really um, thinking about it now. It was all this sort of timeline. If you look at it, it went along that, that way and we did sort of, we're messing around. At some point, I stopped playing guitar and bought a trumpet off the aforementioned Neil Thomas, who played sax with the school band or something. So I brought this trumpet for some reason. I think also I was into Rockabilly and Sonny Burgess, who had was the only Rockabilly really well-known for having a trumpet on it. So I used to play that. Another side note, a few years ago, I got to actually at Viva Las Vegas, Rockabilly Weekend in Vegas, put on by Tom Ingram. I got to actually play those trumpet parts with Sonny Burgess and the other guys from Sun Studios. Anyway. Not long before he passed away. Actually. Yeah, not long before he last, passed away. Last gigs. So yeah, I was, I was into that, wanting to do it. And then I started playing trumpet. We'd got more into swing, Cab Calloway, that sort of thing. Um, another side thing was the fact that my mum lent me her Danzette, which is a little tiny portable 50s record player when I was a little kid. And she had some singles and EPs, of which, for those who don't remember, they were vinyl. Um, and I had, there was a Tommy Dorsey one, which had Well Get It and the Hucklebuck and some other things on. Uh, there was, uh, I think, an Elvis one. There was Bill Haley, R-O-C-K Rock EP from the album, Rock Around the Clock album. And there was a Cliff Richard one, some things like that. And I used to play them all the time. Plus, of course, I had a Disney thing of The Jungle Book with Louis Prima. So this was all, and this was when I was about seven or eight. So these had all led to an effect on me, having an effect on me of the music that I liked. This Louis Prima, already Louis Prima, jazz swing with a bit of Elvis and rock and roll. So this all sort of came to a head when we met Ken and John uh, and we were all getting into swing. We started wearing, uh, instead of the 50s clothes so much for a while, we started wearing double-breasted suits and kipper ties. Uh, and being a bit more vintage, a bit more swing, listening to a lot of Cab Calloway, Louis Jordan music, as I mentioned before, you know, Choo Choo Chiboogie, Minnie the Moocher, that sort of stuff. And then, even though you couldn't get them, and it's so easy now with YouTube to go on and watch stuff. Oh, they don't know how easy oh, they, they don't they, know how easy it is. In my day, we had used to make to, an effort. <laughs> had to make an effort. We used to basically get go through this guy called Sailor Vernon that had a blues magazine 
and you could get sort of, I guess, sort of almost like bootleg. They weren't illegal, but they were sort of just bootleg um, videos, which were from American videos uh, format onto UK format. So really bad quality. And we used to get everything from rock and roll, Grand Old Opry, all the stuff from the Apollo show with Camp Calloway and all sorts of other rhythm and blues artists and jazz artists on jazz shorts, which were the, the short movies, little jukebox videos from the jazz era of the 1940s. They used to play them before the main features of the films. Yeah, that as well, yeah. On, on, they had them jukeboxes. jukeboxes and also used to be like a B-movie and stuff as well. So all these old things, and that's where we got our, like, influence of the showmanship and what the way these... We, we basically created for ourselves the same influences that the rock and roll guys had. We basically were watching and listening to the same roots music as close to as if you saw it live as you could get in deepest, darkest Essex and East London. So the music that the artists in the yeah. 50s grew up with and influenced them, you'd gone back exactly. to have this, almost the same musical journey, but 40 years later. Yeah, because like we often, often talk about the old first generation, second later. generation thing, yeah. where you get like Elvis was influenced by the rhythm and blues and hillbilly together, and he created what he created just as Lonnie Donegan in England was listening to the gospel, gospel jazz, roots, blues, folk music, blues, yet, And he came up with what he did about the same time in England. And then you had, in America, you had, for instance, white teenagers copy Elvis. And in England, you had kids copy Lonnie Donegan with Skiffle. And it immediately, immediately became a second generation watered down version. Yeah. Almost. Although it's still great. But it's still great, it, but it's somebody copying somebody that was already copying the roots. I guess if you see what I mean. I guess that's so how it it's, goes, it's, isn't it? It's inevitable in a way because that is the evolution of music. But if you, it's so fast. It's so fast, it's like and as soon as soon as that happens, if if you particularly like a specific genre or set of genres, then it's over in three or four years, yeah. five years. You know, the rock and roll era is less than a decade. Exactly, yeah. And, and it's funny. Changed. And so instead of just being a young guy playing the guitar and being like Elvis, which I started off being, but even then I was into blues, you know, big, I used to read an Elvis sleeve note and say, oh, Elvis was influenced by the other blues artists on Sun Studios, such as Arthur Big Boy Crudup, who did That's All Right Mama. Uh, so I'd go out and buy an album of his and so on. Howling uh, Wolf, Wolf, all those guys. Sonny Boy Williamson. Exactly. So, and then, so yeah, we were listening and watching this stuff and unintentionally sort of, I guess, educating ourselves for our future career that we did not know what it was going to be, really. But it was just out of pure love. And I think, I know it sounds silly and pretentious calling it an education, but I think all educations are best when they're something you love and are really interested in, whether it be science, engineering, or music. Well, totally, because I think that gives you the self-generated impetus to uh, move forward to the next step and, and yeah. learn more, do more, create more. Yeah, something you have a passion for. Totally. It, it's not someone with a stick behind you saying, you need to go to university to be this. Yeah. It was not like we went to uh, Trinity or some college of music where there was a course on 
jazz, swing and early roots music. Of course, at that time, probably the only music education that existed was probably classical. Nowadays, you get jazz degrees and things like that. Yeah, I don't remember that even being an option. I know I went to, you know, I was in Essex. (laughs) We're still talking about the mid, early to mid 80s at this point. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I I don't remember that being, and even when I did music at school, I had a good music teacher, but it was classical, and then I think they had an after-hours music club where we, I used to go along and play blues and green onions on, on the guitar. <laughs> I, I don't remember, the, maybe there was a hint of jazz, but I don't think there was much else. But not an official? No, no, not in the actual school curriculum as such. So anyway, we sort of unintentionally educated ourselves on all this beautiful stuff from Cab Calloway to Louis Jordan, um, but we also took in Hillbilly and um, yeah, a wide range of all the music. Country, we Hank could, Williams. Yeah, everything that we could possibly get hands on video-wise because there was a, a scarcity of that. I couldn't just go, like I wanted to play the trumpet. I couldn't, or at that time, I didn't know of any way you could just go and watch a trumpet player. And even later on, I only found some great trumpet players and people, but it was basically you know, um, the leftovers of the, uh, or, or the continuing of the, Dixieland traditional jazz revival from the 60s and 70s, which was still going on. Like Kenny Ball and Akadil. Kenny Ball, yeah, but I never even saw them until later. It was... Digby Fairweather. Yeah, it would be, Digby Fairweather was quite early. He was a great trumpet player. and um, you Also know. in Essex land. So the first, I guess, official band that we threw together and got involved with was called uh, The Aces of Rhythm, uh, which Ken actually learnt the bass uh, from scratch I uh, started learning the trumpet almost really for that band I, I mean I, all I played before that was when the Saints go marching in and just used to play it ad hoc in any pub at the drop of a hat but not really anything more than that now was this was this the, what was the name of this band again this band became the Aces of Rhythm the Aces of Rhythm so Aces of Rhythm yeah. was that the band that you knowing a bit that you've told me before, you started out as just introducing before you actually even sang. Yeah. Actually, at one rehearsal with Colin, we were doing it and I sang a bit. I sang, I think I sang, I can't give anything but love. And he said, that's really great, you should sing. Um, and I was all excited. And then the next week I went to rehearsal and it decided, no, actually it was his band and he was going to sing. And um, uh, he was singing the same long. So anyway, that, that band became myself basically just playing a few trumpet solos and I got to eventually sing the encore with a song that I threw together I think called Aces of Rhythm about the band the Aces of Rhythm what was it I was going to say what was it about yeah exactly so basically it was me Ken Colin Kilworth Peter the drummer and another guitarist called uh, Scotty White Um, so we were in the Aces of Rhythm for a while and myself Scott and Peter moved away from uh, Colin, and, and at that point, Ken decided to stay with Colin for a while. Uh, let's get the timeline. Aces of Rhythm. We left the Aces of Rhythm, and we were living in South End. We decided to start another band, like the rhythm bit, um, so we called ourselves, weirdly enough, the Emperors of Rhythm. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so You're trying to go one up. Yep, we were thinking, well, we're not just aces, we are the emperors of rhythm. We played, um, became, I guess, legendary in our way. 
<laughs> around <laughs> the Legend, South End. Legends of South End. Legends of South Busking End. Legends. But it's funny actually because at that time, South End was like a microcosm, if I may, may use such a pretentious, pretentious term. term. <laughs> it was a bit like a, a, a small London in its music scene. It had its own burgeoning. Have a term there. Right. Burgeoning music scene. I think we're supplying, live music. Su supplying a dictionary with this so podcast. There was loads of live music. Uh, there was even a little record label in the area. Paul Young's bodyguard um, was becoming uh, wanted to become an agent or a manager, and so he was interested in the Emperor's Rhythm and us. Um, but unfortunately, at that point, um, two of the guys wanted to go more commercial and into modern music, which was. Um, Gary Horn, who was the guitarist, and Bob Marshall, who was the bass player. When you say modern, that's still 1980. <laughs> yeah, that's 1980s. Um, I can't remember what sort of music they were into, but they just wanted to go away from what we were Contemporary. doing. Contemporary. Exactly. And I um, moved back down to London with um, Ken, who is now not with Colin and the Aces of Rhythm, obviously, anymore. And we moved into uh, Dagenham in East London and started another band. To cut a long story short, I got a phone call from um, this guy who was the, wanted to be the manager, and he said, you know, now the band's split up, do you, you, you've got a great voice, do you want to come with me? I can get some session musicians, and we can get, you know, we can bring something out. And I said, no, I really want to um, carry on with my friends. And noble. Also, yeah, it was noble, and also I want to learn more about an audience, to become more, learn playing live, really. I, I, I saw from what he was suggesting as sort of doing a sort of like a being another shaking Stevens or something and just jumping in studio and doing studio and just going for that, which may have been brilliant in one way, but I wanted to, uh, you know, increase my, uh, you know, talent as a live performer. Mm -hmm. I love playing live and be with the people I liked as well, because that was part of the thing was we, we loved the music. That was the thing. It came, that was the thing, it, was, it came from all of us. It came from loving the music. Yeah. Hence that education we had and everything was just from loving the music and doing it for the love of it rather than for money or to live on or as a career. It was like, if we can do this as a career, it's because we love it and that's allowing us to do it. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we had the band. Um, then we were called, um, originally Ken booked a gig in Dingwalls I believe it was, as uh, Clarkson's Blues Buskers, because at the time we were playing in the street, doing a lot of busking. Yeah. And so we did the gig. When they announced us on the stage, they turned it to Blues Busters. Just a mistake. As a mistake. And so we thought, great, Clarkson's Blues Busters. Uh, and then I didn't feel that comfortable having, I never really liked my second name anyway. So we became the Blues Busters, and we played for a while as the Blues Busters. And the Blues Busters was, at the time, uh, myself, Ken, Peter came back into the band on the drums, and we had Big John on the saxophone at that time uh, when he was available, and Nick Lunt, was Nick Lunt on baritone then? Nick Lunt on baritone and Paul Packer on uh, saxophone. Alto. Yeah, he played alto and tenor. So we'd often have three horns. Um, but obviously people still had jobs at that time. Um, and at one point, we said to the band, me and Ken basically were running the band. Uh, we lived in the same house. We had our own little PA system. 
we had a car, we had a PA system, we had a band. So uh, we used to book the gigs, we used to uh, load the PA into the car because you wouldn't leave it in Dagenham outside, drive to the gig, set up the PA system, do the gig, set it down again, put it in the car, go home, take it out and put it under the stairs, <laughs> book the gigs for the next week, or whatever. That was sort of how it worked. And okay, so, okay, so as a little aside, how did you book the gigs? Because I remember you telling me a story about the phone. Yeah, we had um, an answer before, machine. Way before mobile phones, way before internet, oh, email, yes. no social media. Yep. Literally phones and letters. Basically, there was a revolutionary thing called the answer machine, which before we'd only ever seen on the beginning of Jim Rockford on the Rockford Files, we actually had tape, cardboard over the uh, answer machines and the phones so that we couldn't dial out, so we couldn't spend money. We would go out, come back, play the answer machine messages. We couldn't phone out on the phone. So then we'd walk over to the pub nearby. It was a, it was a telephone box, a normal telephone box. So we used to stand outside in rain, heat, snow, blizzards, whatever, on the phone with our scribbled down notes of the messages, phoning the gigs back and do the bookings. And that's how we got the gigs. Often with people asking if we wanted a fight, who we were drunk coming out of the pub, to which we'd politely say, not at the moment, we're uh, doing bookings. Something equally as polite. And basically that was how it went. I had a girlfriend at the time as an actress whose dad uh, had like a record label and actually had a, a printing plant in okay, Stratford. So vinyl. So a pre Print, Vinyl. This is vinyl, days of vinyl. So we decided to do our first single, uh, which was a blues, a blues for You, a song called Blues For You, which I wrote, and Hey Barbara Ebop. I think Hey Barbara Ebop was the A-side. We started printing this thing and we were called the Blues Busters. Funny enough, a connection again with Paul Young again. His band, Q-Tips, had a project called the Blues Busters. And some of our fans had gone to their gig and said, you're not the Blues Busters. So we'd got a phone call, basically, sort of a cease and desist phone call saying, look, we've got an album coming out and we're famous. Um, can you please not use the name? So we were on the phone, probably at the same phone box, to uh, the pressing plant. And he said, what are you going to call it then if we're not going to be the Blues Busters? I said, well, I like the aces because when we were aces of rhythm I like the aces so maybe blues aces and Ken said no what about jive so I just said over the phone to him jive aces so he printed the jive aces on the label that was it that was the th all the thought that went into the name of the band so no pouring over it for hours no 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 survey no focus groups no <laughs> see been... what the reaction and that's so basically I guess why we've ended up where we are <laughs> because you've had that same philosophy to every part of your career. Exactly. <laughs> and then after that, you just took bookings as the Jive Aces, or you... Yeah, so we were doing bookings as Jive Aces. We were playing at various places, including the Dover Street Wine Bar, which actually helped because he said, when he'd, one of the guys that did the bookings there actually had got our demo tape and thought, because of the name Blues Busters, we were just a, like a guitar blues band, uh, which obviously we weren't. Branding problem there. Exactly. So we actually was quite interested in, in the giant bases. We started doing, obviously from the busking, we were doing street entertaining. We actually went in for the street entertainers competition in uh, both Camden and in Wales, the international street entertainers competition. So, so I'll also add here that this is all way before our yellow suits. Oh, way before yellow suits. Out. 
So I was with the, with the Jive Aces when the Jive Aces died, and it became the Jive Aces. Me and, me and Ken really whipped it into shape. Relatively speaking. Relatively speaking. We knew that we wanted to do it by then. As our career, we were earning money busking. Relatively speaking. <laughs> relatively speaking. And so basically from the busking and various other things, we started getting gigs. I remember we do like nurses' parties, weddings, all that sort of thing. And we started doing a few nightclubs. We did Dingwalls and various other things, Dover Street Wine Bar, um, all these different places. And it basically took off from there. And then we were doing the Theatre Royal Stratford. We did a few alternative comedy places, actually. We used to play uh, Through the Looking Glass, and that was an alternative comedy club. We did a few alternative comedy, comedy clubs. And you worked with quite a few people that have gone on to become very Yeah, one from Lee Evans. British comedy. Uh, yeah, all sorts of people. And then we started doing the Variety Night, which was brilliant. We used to do it once a month, uh, Variety Night for Charity, which Kate Williams of Love Thy Neighbour, 70s TV show, used to put on for charity at the Stratford, Theatre Royal Stratford. We used to do that, and there were loads of different acts on famous people, all sorts of stuff. And I think she put us forward for Opportunity Knocks, which was before Britain's Got Talent or any of those, or Pop Idol. It was for years the talent contest, and it was on BBC One, very good quality, high quality. Um, and it didn't put people down. It was more of a positive thing. And that was originally done by Huey Green, but we run it towards the end of the, the whole thing and towards the end of the tenure of, of um, Les Dawson, the comedian. And we went on that show. We won sort of thing on the show. They had a clapometer on the show. We got really high applause. Uh, and then funnily enough, we were leaving that very night, getting in the van and driving to Switzerland for three, a three-week tour. And it was so funny because we were so blasé about being on the TV which obviously, to our parents and anyone watching it, it was the high point of our career. We were on prime time. So far. There was only, only three, three TV stations, four TV stations at the time. And we were on the main one, which was BBC One. Prime time. We were on there. We were leaving that night to go to Switzerland. We were so blasé. We were more worried about getting through, because they had a applause, a clapometer, clapometer, and... We won sort of on the show. We got the highest applause, I believe, and on the actual show. But you get the, then there's a phone call vote system to get through to the next week and end up on the final and that. And we were almost more worried about getting through because we didn't want to cancel the tour in Switzerland. So we didn't want to go back home. But it was probably the high point of our career, obviously was at the time. Didn't get through. Obviously, there was no social media at the time. There was no YouTube for it to be played on and get millions of views. So you either watched it or you didn't. You either watched it or you didn't. And we were in all the local newspapers, Romford Recorder and stuff, as the local boys, local heroes, with our 8 by 10s our black and white photographs. And that's how we got more gigs from then. We had a prestige from being on the show, sent the video. And so you the, had to actually physically copy the, the tape onto other VHS? Yeah, like take yeah we went and paid, store. got a whole load of VHS videos sat down, put them in brown envelopes with 8x10s, sent them out to every... In those days, you had, you know, British legions, working men's clubs, nightclubs, music clubs, jazz clubs, uh, festivals, and we sent them out to everywhere um, and basically started getting in more and more work from that. The rest is history. That is the beginning of what became the Jive Aces. We, at the time, said, OK, 
we're going to give up our jobs because we were getting, uh, me and Ken said, look, we're getting loads of work in Europe. Uh, we keep wanting to be away for a long time. People only had a certain amount of leave or, or you know, time off from their job. And we wanted to do more touring of Europe because that was where a lot of our work was coming from. Yeah. Germany, we were in Germany all the time. Switzerland, we were doing two or three times a year for three weeks at a time. Uh, we were going down really well over there. Um, in, in the UK, we had stuff, but you know, even then it was up north in Newcastle where Stuart Campbell, yeah, yeah, first played the single and that got the dance floor full up and he called us Boz Bora, who produced the first single, who well, was in the Polecats and is now the guitarist for... Uh, Morrissey. For Morrissey. Has been for many years. Actually. Yeah. Uh, he produced it. He actually put it forward, I think. He sent it to actually to Switzerland, which got us the gigs in Switzerland, our first main continual you know, um, consistent tour Regular in Europe tours, yeah. or abroad. And so, yeah, we were getting so much work, we said, right, we're gonna, you've got three months, decide whether to give up your jobs. Uh, and Did everyone? Or Nick only? Lunt didn't want to give up the job because he was working for, um, at the time, for uh, British Airways at Heathrow and he could fly anywhere he wanted. For free. Um, Paul fact, Packer. He, he would meet you at the gigs, wouldn't he? He'd yeah, just meet us at the gigs. We used to call it, David Niven it, we used to call it, because he'd just get in a, we'd be like all scrunched up in a van and, He'd fly there because he got free flights. So he, he didn't want to stay in the band because of that. And then Paul Packer, the other tenor um, alto player, also didn't want to give up his job. Both of them went on to do have careers as musicians. Nick Lunt ended up playing in um, um, Jules Holland's band, obviously. Still does. And still does, and with other people. There's loads more, but... There's loads more, but that kind of sums up the... The beginning. The origin, the origin story. Yeah. If we, if Which this, is quite if a rambly, long one. If this was a Marvel, one. Marvel movie, it would be like the first... The origin, origin. Yeah. yeah. To end off, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, this is our first podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Found it informative and entertaining at the same time. And bear in mind, it's our first one, so if it's really rubbish and you're a bit bored and it's a bit rambly, there will be more. Let us know. Say, I like the rambly bits, Ian, or no... It was a bit rambly, to be ah, honest. But what if I edit the rambly bits Can out? Can it be more pithy? If I edit the rambly bits out, they won't have heard the rambly bits. I don't know. I sound a bit rambly even with the rambly bits edited out. True. I think it's a, the way it, it is when it's a late a, night on a, a ferry. It's a healthy dose after, of ramble. Yeah. It's a bit like ramble first blood. <laughs> ramble first blood. <laughs> Basically. That's what we'll call it. Ramble first blood. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, however you do that it should be on iTunes pod, Apple Podcasts whatever it's called now on Spotify Podcasts all the other ones Stitcher all of those things I've just heard other people say those on podcasts Sounds I've good. Absolutely no, you sounded quite I have no idea what they are quite professional <laughs> it just, and, uh, it just, I could have just, I just also just go and listen to our music on Spotify and watch our music videos please please and please spread bring me sunshine a bit more because it's been on just over 3 million views for a while now <laughs> thanks very much see you no well not see you hear you hear, hear us. you hear, hear us, us soon next time cheers goodbye bye